From the Upper Mount Samiesville Studios in Samiesville, Pennsylvania, comes the We Talk Games interview. Welcome to another episode of Interview Starcade. I am Wiggly Online, Kyle Von Kubik. Give it a little bit of English on the side and you'll rack up some extra points. Hey, pinball! It is pinball time. It's pinball time again. You and I both love pinball. And this is one of the biggest pinball names that we had on We Talk Games. We pull some of our favorite interviews that we do on We Talk Games and bring them to you. Isolate it. With a little bit of backstory on our interview Starcade episodes. And this was uh, kind of historic because uh, Steve Ritchie doesn't do a lot of audio interviews anymore because he can't really hear that well. Right. He blew his earballs out with the guitars. Guitars, motorcycle riding, and of course, pinball. <laughs> he has his pinball table turned up to 11. Yes. But so he's he's uh, got a little tinnitus, very hard to hear. I had to actually conduct the interview when I I would ask a question, I'd be typing in and you can sometimes you could hear the aim go bleep bleep because I conducted the interview also via you typewriter. You did a fantastic job. <laughs> and sometimes it was rough, especially when I was laughing. Yes. Uh, what did you just say? No, I'm laughing. Oh, okay. And what a character this guy was. A lot of this when we were trying to get this interview to happen he had some colorful words to say about nolan bushnell who i mean this guy's been in the industry for a long time he didn't just yes he's not just someone that other pinball creators respected and looked to uh, for ideas or for inspiration or to see how you you get the flow going in, in a pinball table king also, of the flow he is king of the flow he was also involved a lot with uh, some of our favorite games like mortal Kombat and things like this yes so what a fascinating interview! But what, he he had he had some nicknames for uh, Nolan, I think. I just believe Steve Ritchie uh, felt that Nolan Bushnell didn't have the same vision, uh, particularly with pinball, that he did. True. I just wish some of the, he had some colorful uh, twists on even Nolan's name. I think I, I don't recall at this time, but he he had nicknames for just about everyone. And I thought this is going to be a real piss and vinegar. Uh, interview and when we got him on he was like a pussycat but a very very informative uh, pussycat that took us down a wonderful video gaming highway experience let's hear it i'm ready willing on cables keith let's open it up let's get steve ritchie on the line hollister california steve ritchie go thank you for joining us when we talk games Nice talking to you, Wig. Steve, you are now one of the most well-known names in pinball, and your online biography gives us a nice overview of your continuing gaming run. I've read online how you got your first taste for gaming, but I'd love to go a little bit deeper into some of those earliest gaming experiences. Any games that stick out in your memory, any mechanicals or other stories? My first pinball experiences were when I was about five years old. My father used to take me to Playland at the beach in San Francisco. It was a weird place, you know, and I, I remember wood rail games there, now that I know what a wood rail is. They didn't have any legs on them. They were bolted to, like, a big, long block of wood, 
or a wooden box, I guess. So you'd just walk up to a game with no legs at all underneath it. Uh, but you couldn't move the game much either. Not that I was trying to be a, a big uh, a biffer at, uh, at five years old. <laughs> anyway, um, my dad really loved them too. And my dad was like, well, my dad was kind of a bad man. When he was younger in San Francisco, grocery stores had pinball machines in them and uh, they had a knockoff button. And when you won a replay, you didn't win a replay. You won things like groceries or whatever. I mean, it was the same as cash. They were basically gambling machines. One night they found a way to slide the glass off with the guy that owned the grocery store was in the back. They slid it off and they were running up all kinds of switches. And then the guy came out and stood next to him and he said, how's it going, boys? And they said, well, it's fine. We're doing pretty well on the pinball machine. And the guy did not notice that there was no glass on the game and just <laughs> went about his business. So after they ran up a bunch of credits, you know, they'd cash them in at the uh, checkout. And, uh, well, it was cheating. Wow. I haven't heard that story before. Oh, I haven't told it much. What are some of your earliest memories of playing pinball? I guess when I was about 10 years old, my parents joined the bowling alley in Pacifica, California. That's where I got to play a lot of pinball machines very often. And uh, they were uh, 10 cents a play or three for 25. While they were bowling, I would play pinball. They, they'd give me a dollar. So I had to, you know, kind of, I mean, they'd be there for a few hours. So I had to make it last. You know, I got to be pretty good. And it was fun. As we grow this show with our interviews, we realize more and more the entanglement of early game creation. You began your game career at Atari, but it was far from developing video games or pins. What was the early environment at Atari, and can you give us any more of the backstory not mentioned in your online biography? I actually began my, my game design career at Atari. To make a long story short, I was a musician before that, and I had a pretty cool rock band going, and we were making a little money, but not enough. And I got tired of being poor, so I went to Atari and uh, walked in the door, and the first thing you notice is all these pretty ladies running around, young, beautiful women, and the radio is blasting rock and roll, and it's stereo right there in the lobby, and it was pretty funky. I filled out an application, and they hired me for uh, work as an electromechanical technician. I designed a test fixture for them that had a, you know, like a universal plug system so any, any Atari game you picked up could be played and tested just using the board. All the controls for all their games were built into this thing. And I built in a big, giant burn-in oven system, high current, uh, making harnesses, things like that. After I was there for about a year, one of the vice presidents walked up to me and he said, we're going to start a pinball division. Would you like to be part of it? And I said, sure. So uh, they hired a guy who billed himself as a game designer, but later on when I went to Williams, I found out that he was a mechanical engineer. Nevertheless, he came to Atari from Chicago and began helping us, and every day he would lecture us. He was kind of grumpy, but a good person, and he would, every day he would say, we're never going to make it. We will never build pinball machines. Your bosses are crazy, but we're going to give it a shot. And uh, his name is Bob Jonasy. And he taught me how to assemble a pinball machine. He drew a drawing, and I would build it up for him. And also, we, we got in uh, two machines from competitors. Let's see, we got a, we got a uh, space mission from Williams, and what was the other game? 
I'm not sure. It was Captain Fantastic. Anyway, I got to play those like crazy. Had a great time. But I was ending up building prototypes and finally uh, getting the game uh, on the line. And, and the line was a shambles. I mean, nobody at Atari knew how to even make a pinball production line. It was a train wreck from the very beginning because... All the culture for pinball was located in Chicago, so everything had to be shipped out. So they would buy boards from Electronic Sound or Triple Cabinet. When I say boards, I'm talking about screened play fields with none of the parts on them. They'd put them in the truck in Chicago, say in the dead of summer or winter, didn't matter. Then they'd drive them across to California, and when we opened up the back of the truck to unload these things, Almost every one of them were warped from a huge difference in climate. So they had to be unwarped, every board, and uh, lots of other trials and tribulations at Atari. It was very interesting. After a while, I took a, a piece of wood with no cuts on it, again, a play field, and, and taped some paper onto it and began drawing a game. I thought, well, this old guy can draw pinball machines, but they're not very interesting, and so I think I could do this. So I started working on one on my own at home. When it was finished, uh, I brought it to my boss, the vice president of engineering, and he uh, he said, no, I don't want you designing pinballs. I just don't want you to do that. So I said, fine. I waited a day or so. But uh, after that, I just went to Nolan Bushnell because I had a burning desire to make pinball machines, and I thought I could do it. So I brought my design to the president, Nolan Bushnell, and asked him, if he would take a look at it. And he said, sure. So he looked at it and he said, you did this all at home? And I said, yes. And he says, well, I want you to build it up. And from today on, you're a designer. And we'll get you a cubicle and a drafting machine and a team of people and we're gonna go for it. So I was the happiest guy in the world at that point. I made two games there. As an aside, I also met Eugene Jarvis. His first game was my first game, Airborne Avenger. Airborne Avenger was a very interesting game, but pretty amateurish. Eugene Jarvis went on to be a great game programmer. He's now the owner of Raw Thrills, a video game company in Chicago, and we got to work on quite a few games together, I guess about four, and uh, at Atari we did uh, Airborne Avenger and then Superman. And we both sold better than the previous ones. Did you have anything to do with the Hercules pin or an opinion about it? Um, the Hercules pin was uh, delivered to us from uh, Hialeah, Florida, I think it was. It was a development done by a company that wasn't pinball at all. It was Ronnie Halliburton, who uh, is still a game designer in Florida. I think he does redemption games mostly now. Hercules was delivered in, but it was called Bigfoot at, at the time. Uh, Bally had it for a while, but wasn't interested in building it. So it was brought in, and uh, people began to work on changing the artwork, but not any of the geometry or anything, and, and began building the game. They sold quite a few. I'm not sure it was worth the energy and the money that it cost to, to make it, but you know, it was a big, fun thing, and it was a special item in our case. I think they got a pretty good buck for each unit also. And speaking about changing artwork on Bigfoot to Hercules, I've got to tell you that one of the things I absolutely adore about the Atari pins is the unmistakable gorgeous Atari artwork. Atari definitely made up for primitive graphics possible even on their video game hardware with those amazing box art graphics and the graphics on their pins. 
the artwork uh, on Atari uh, products was spectacular. And I got to tell you, uh, I've never seen it done the way it was done at Atari. Um, when I think of uh, Atari art artwork, I think of George Opperman. He was a great artist. He wouldn't just design the play field. Well, I mean, here I am, a young guy, and I don't know, he's 40-something, and he's walking up to me and he says, okay, you're, you're making this game called the Airborne Avenger. What do you see the artwork about? He actually asked me. From then on, we all always you know we always consulted with each other uh, on all the teams that I ran to to make pinball machines but this was the first time on everyone adventures I thought wow this is great I can actually talk to him about it and and we came up with a good plan anyway the guy was spectacular and also meticulous uh, every little detail done correctly a really nice person to work with and have fun with and uh, he would not only do the play field he would do the plastics the back glass, the cabinet, the brochure, and then the display at shows. So it was a totally unified look for all of our products. He would do that for every game, or he would have his uh, subordinates, let's see, Bob Flamati was one, um, quite a few other guys. With the art, you're right, though, the, the art is absolutely gorgeous, and uh, I, uh, you know, I miss that. And George passed away, uh, I don't know, 20 years ago. It was a sad day. What were some of your favorite innovations in the titles you helped create? I personally need to have that lane change capability. I also enjoy multi-ball, magnet shenanigans, and all. Although I love your multi-play field work, I usually stink at it greatly. Well, my favorite innovations... Definitely lane changes up there. So it was simple. It happened one night while Eugene and I were working on uh, firepower. And I asked him, can you, uh, can you like, move the light? And what I want to do is I would like to move an unlit lane underneath the ball. And uh, he wrote the code. I, I think it was done the same night. And we began using lane change and thought it was a lot of fun. And also, I think a cool advancement in pinball in that, for that, you didn't get to do much except move the flippers. Uh, basically, the only player control was flippers. There were a few games that had buttons, like I'm thinking the, uh, what is it, the Gator Grabber, and only a couple of other games that had any other input or game-changing ability other than flipping the flippers. I like people to score the lanes many times during a game. It's kind of fun. Why not let them? Multiball was not my innovation. There were other games with multiball before I got there, but I was the first to have a solid-state multiball game, and that, well, it utilized the power of the computer. Um, I was able to, uh, you know, hold the locks in memory, uh, equalize things. The multi-ball device that I developed at Williams was was made from a hole kicker, and there used to be this little metal track that stayed above the play field on uh, flat games in those days, and I just pulled the uh, the metal part down below the play field, and so when the balls kicked up from the drain over to the shooter, they would stop, and they were stopped by the edge of the wood, and then popped back up to wood level right in front of the shooter. Anyway, it was a pretty cheap and uh, and cool system, and it worked. I don't know. We used it probably for seven or eight years. I loved working with Magnus, of course. 
I guess my favorite thing about Magnusave is that got a secondary use. It actually had a, a value. It's another one of those controllable things that the player could operate skillfully or un and grab the ball and actually get rewarded by having the ball go back to the flipper instead of down the drain. I don't know. I'm pretty proud of the uh, the accelerator too. The ball accelerator used on um, No Fear and. Uh, I'm not thinking getaway at this point, but I'm thinking about three coils in a row on a metal trough. It, it was fun, and it, it allowed me to get the ball up higher in the cabinet. you got to be careful when you lay out shots that the ball has enough energy on it to get to the top of things, even when the flippers get old. So you can only go so high with things. Anyway, that allowed me to put a huge amount of acceleration on the ball and uh, and bring it up to a really high level in, inside the cabinet. I guess multi-level, it was a pretty important innovation. It was fun. I, I have to say, though, that all designers were talking about a multi-level pinball machine. And uh, here's another side story. This is interesting. This is like, there was a restaurant called the, uh, the Round Robin. It was like kind of centrally located between Williams and Bally and Stern Pinball Companies. Gottlieb was out in the... Uh, out in the suburbs, so we very seldom saw anybody that worked at Gottlieb. But on Fridays, when we went to the Red Robin, we also called it the Dinosaur Club. Uh, I hate to admit it, but now I'm a dinosaur. I'm as old as those guys were then. But uh, we called it the Dinosaur Club, and we went there and met everyone in the pinball business. Norm Clark, that's the first time I met Gary Stern there. I did meet Alvin Gottlieb there in the beginning. I met Harry Williams there. All the other designers, Greg Kamick, Jim Patla from Bally, and then all the guys from, from Williams, uh, Pat Waller, uh, and Barry Osler, my brother, uh, Tony Kramer, Dennis Nordman. We'd see Greg Ferris there. Anyway, we all knew each other, and we didn't talk about games much, but we did all talk about multi-level games. And uh, I think everybody had the idea, but I'm just the guy that did it. The day I met Harry Williams, I was introduced by Gary Stern to him. Gary Stern said, this was what, maybe 30 years ago. He said, uh, Steve, this is uh, Harry Williams. I'd like to meet him. Harry stuck out his hand and said, hi, Rich. Good to meet you. And I said, hi, Bill. Good to meet you. And then he said, my name's not Bill. And I said, my name's not Rich. Anyway, we had a big laugh, and that's how I met him. The interesting thing about Harry Williams was that to sit down and talk to him, I, I think he was in his late 60s at the time. He was the same age as us. I think I was 28 when I met him. But that's what you felt. You felt like he was the same age. He was having a good time doing what he's doing, clowning around, you know. Just a funny guy, too. Real sharp wit. I really enjoyed his company. I, I didn't get to talk to him a whole lot more because he wasn't working at Williams. He was working with Gary Stern over at Stern Pinball, the first Stern Pinball. Another feature on a pinball table I really enjoy is a mini post between the flippers. I think I've, I've probably used it on three or four games. Sometimes a geometry that I just love, uh, and everybody loves, has a, an occasional nasty drain straight down the middle. And uh, it's depressing, and I, I, don't like, I don't like to upset the player. The game will make less money. They'll come away feeling not so good, and uh, so I fixed them. And what I did was I put a, a little mini post between the flippers. I'm not the first guy to do it. I think 
Steve Kirk may have been, or it may have been, you know, at some other earlier point, but he always called it the Kirk Post. So Steve Kirk gets the credit for that post between the flippers. Some of my favorite titles include Monster Bash, WWF Royal Rumble, High Speed 2, Funhouse, and if I include other pins that also play on my nostalgia feelings, I'd include Royal Guard, King Cool, 8-Ball, the 1977 8-Ball, Gorgar, Xenon, and Black Knight. Uh, Do you have any comments on my favorites, and what are some of your favorites to play? Monster Bash was a great game, and I I liked playing it. I didn't get a a chance to play it all that much because I had already left Williams to go work at Atari when Monster Bash came out. But it's a nice piece. Plays well. Good fun. That's like uh, most of the guys that I know that are excellent pinball players like Roger Sharp and uh, Lyman Sheets, uh, Keith Johnson. These these guys all have a monster bash. It's a good player's game. WWF Royal Rumble, I don't know. It sounds like... uh, Sounds like a good backyard bonfire to me. <laughs> but, uh, you know, pe- people have their taste. Uh, <laughs> isn't that rude? Anyway, um, I see two. And it's a fun game. It's not very difficult or hard to understand, but I'm proud of it. It plays nice. The reason why it, it plays ZZ Top's LaGrange is because that is such a good driving tune. And I don't know if people relate to driving tunes. I love to drive, especially fast. And um, that tune just rocks when you're driving. I don't know. It's just a great song. <laughs> Funhouse, another great game. Kind of scary, but cool and, uh, and well, funky. And uh, it, it was a good game. It earned very well. Sold many, a lot of machines. Um, Royal Guard, I don't know anything about. King Cool, oh, that's that bad scissor slipper arrangement at the bottom. You can have that one, too. That one should be thrown on the fire, I think, with uh, Royal Rumble out in the backyard. <laughs> Eight Ball was an excellent game. Totally in love with it. We were uh, at Atari, and we we were, like, totally enamored. I only wished that the Atari product could be anywhere near as good as Eight Ball was when it happened. And I really, really wanted to make a game with the narrow standard size. Right after I saw Eight Ball, it was like... Yeah, we should be doing that. Why are we, you know, making these wide-body games? Gorgar was, um, that was a landmark game in terms of the first game that spoke. I'm not in love with it. It doesn't have to go on the flyer, but what is it? I don't know. It's not really a shooter's game. I'm not sure what it is. Xenon, of course, was a landmark game. Played nice, sounds good. Sexy lady, I love the tube. Black Knight, what do you want me to do? You want me to boast about my own game? I... I loved making the Black Knight. It was fun. Uh, it was addictive. And uh, I liked the multi-ball feature. What I didn't like was I wasn't allowed to use 50-volt clippers because they hadn't been invented yet. And I begged for them at the beginning of the project. It was the first multi-level game, and I knew I needed the power to get up and down those ramps reliably over time. Things where you have to account for that. Um, we sold about 12,000. I mean, it would have sold 20,000, but... A good friend who will remain nameless worked at Williams at the same time as I did. And at that point in time, we did not have individual offices. We were like in a bullpen, bullpen with, with cubicles with fairly low walls. And uh, while I was drawing Black Knight, I had about half the game drawn. And this guy defected to Bally. And 
basically copied everything that I had on the uh, left side of the play field. That game was Flash Gordon. Wow. Well, it was a, a nasty scene at the AMOA show in Chicago. It's with the president of the company being held back by the marketing uh, VP and uh, the engineering VP from ripping this guy's head off right there on the floor. It was disgusting. Anyway, we would have probably sold, you know, upwards of 20,000 machines if that hadn't happened. And to top it off, I let this guy live with me. I got him the job at Williams. And he was a decent game designer and a, an excellent draftsman, far better than I was. But, you know, he was a copy machine. So it was, it was kind of a bad scene. And now that I have peed on all your favorite games, what are you going to do to me? <laughs> Well, I guess if they have to be peed on, it's probably best to be peed on by one of the biggest names in pinball. I mean, no, you know, of course, that's my opinion about games, and it doesn't diminish how I still feel about them. I just want to know your take on those. And speaking about peeing on things, when we originally contacted you, I mentioned that I'd love to know how you felt about the Nintendo 8-bit versions of some of the hot Williams machines like Pinbot and also one of yours, High Speed. And I was surprised that you never heard of these titles. Well not really surprised since the video game crowd and the pinball crowd are not necessarily the same audience. But I happen to be a big fan of video pinball, especially like video pinball games that do things that you can't do unless you're using like Pinball 2000 or something. But you have produced video games and you enjoy PC games and video games. Have you ever played any video pinball games worth mentioning? I'll tell you, I don't remember ever seeing Nintendo 8-bit versions of Williams Machines um, or High Speed uh, or uh, Pinbot. I, uh, I, I never have played them. I I can appreciate a good video simulation of pinball. I mean, uh, especially now, there's some really nice things on uh, Nanotech. has a decent machine and a, a couple of games that are reasonable. I'm impressed by them, but it, it seems like, you know, video pinball machines just don't have a huge audience. And I, I think it's growing. I think it is growing uh, to, to play on your uh, your PlayStation 3 or um, Xbox. Uh, the games look spectacular, and uh, you're definitely drawn in much more than any other you know format for a video pinball. But video pinball has traditionally been uh, video game players don't like them, and, and, you know, mechanical or electronic mechanical pinball players don't like them either. However, I have played some, and I, I do enjoy them. On the subject of video pinball, I, uh, I attempted to work with, with Nanotech, but they are uh, uh, very mm, difficult to deal with. I'll leave it at that. And there is another company that I'm talking to right now about developing some uh, video pinball product, Fresh Steve Ritchie Designs. What are some of your favorite video game titles? Wow, video game titles. My favorite video game of all time, Robotron. <laughs> Such a mind blower. I mean, I, I shouldn't say my favorite of all time. My favorite coin-op video game is Robotron. I think there's no doubt about that. These, these are my friends and, uh, and also, you know, co-designers of Black Knight and Firepower F-14 Tomcat, Airborne Avenger, Superman, Eugene Jarvis, and Larry DeMar were the guys behind um, Robotron. And it's just such a cool game because, you know, it really can't be played well at home either. You need that big heavy cabinet and the twin joysticks. You can drag the game around by them. And, it, uh, and I often did uh, trying to, you know, survive in that game. Anyway, it's... 
total adrenaline. I loved it. I loved asteroids. When I was at Atari, you know, I, there was a huge range. I, I loved Track 10, Track 20. Tank. Love Tank. Uh, you know, I mean, these are all great games in their era. Some were very simplistic. Later games, there's hardly any video drivers that I hate. I really loved uh, Eugene's um, Cruising World, Cruising USA series, Cruising Exotica. Just fun drivers, or you know, you know. But I also like the Sega drivers, where they were they're more technical and uh, maybe a cleaner look. But I really think that the casual drivers are more fun for me, anyway. I like Tempest a lot. Tempest was a great video game. Wow. I mean, I play video games for more than I play pinball. Right now I am playing... Um, I might be a little bit behind the times, but I'm, I'm playing uh, Call of Duty 4, uh, Modern Warfare. I still like Far Cry. It's a, a great landmark piece. It's totally fun. I, you play it in a dark room at night, it's like, wow, just gripping. I love playing Doom. In fact, Doom, Doom crippled Williams. The entire pinball department <laughs> would be on it. But I mean, it didn't really cripple it. It just stopped all after hours work. And game design is a vocation where you, your work basically never ends. If, you're, if you don't like overtime, you don't want to be a game designer because to make a great game takes more than 40 hours a week on everyone on the team's part, pretty much. It's in our blood. I mean, the passion's there. I don't care. I, I don't mind working longer or uh, or harder to make something great. And it's like making a record on a multi-track machine. You can keep doing it over and over until it's right before you release it. It's just a great opportunity to make something, you know, as close to perfect and fun as you can. And it's... I, uh, you know, I, I, I love making games. Now, people have seen your work, people have interacted with your work, and people can also hear your work. You were the voice of Black Knight, and somehow you became the voice of Shao Kahn in Mortal Kombat. Can you tell us a little bit about your voice acting work? I really believe in um, imparting as much of a personality into a machine as I can. If, if the game requires it, you're not going to really... There is a slight personality or a couple of them in high speed. You hear interaction between the cop uh, who's on the road and the dispatcher who's back in the police station. That was the beginning of, of, of my first involvement with making a story, building a story and some characters with people that spoke. And, and um, it was cool interaction between the two. Of course, it exploded since then. And uh, I really enjoyed doing Black Knight. And in those days, we had to do everything. I, well, Black Knight was, we would get the best bang for the buck because the memory was so small that I would have to say everything in monotone. I am the Black Knight. Ooh. I would have to say it all in monotone so that... We could say, the Black Knight will slay you. Uh, and the words can be assembled in many different configurations. So that's why the Black Knight was all monotone and also firepower. So we could build more sentences out of uh, the words. As time went on and memory got cheap, we began to get a lot more uh, personalized. And before T.T. Fryzer's Central Processing Unit, how was it that you got asked to do the more human-like voice of Shao Kahn? Well, I got asked by Ed Boon and um, Dan Forden, just the best sound man in the whole business, in the whole damn game business, Dan Forden. Ed Boon, of course, is a master game designer, uh, 
Mortal Kombat as uh, his claim to fame, but he also programmed F-14 Tomcat as a rookie. We kind of broke him in, Yuji and I. Um, that was his first game, and uh, he was a very excellent programmer, hard worker, and a passionate gamer, and just a great guy to hang hang with and, and have fun. Great wit. Oh, God. Dan and uh, Boone, that's what we called him. We didn't call him Ed ever. We never called him Ed. We only called him Boone. Hey, Boone. Ed Boone said, hey, you want to be the voice of this oriental wizard kind of guy, you know, in martial arts. And, uh, you know, I had an idea of what he sounded like. And, uh, but, but actually, I got all the coaching from Dan Forden. We spent many, many hours in the studio making that voice and making that, that character. I don't remember that much of it. It's just... Well, all my voices are generally lowered in pitch, uh, synthetically. And uh, I really enjoy it. I have fun, and I get into the character. I feel the emotions and can express them appropriately. I, uh, I, I have a great time doing it. Now, you actually worked for Atari two times in your gaming career. What was your second run like there? I did uh, actually work for Atari two times. First time was the very beginning of my career when I just walked in the door knowing nothing. And the last time was 1996. I hate to say it, but the writing was on the wall at Williams. We weren't selling very many pinball machines. Uh, the income wasn't as great. No matter, well, you know, my best work, I could only sell 6,000 machines of my best work. And so I, I didn't think... Uh, and I always like to be a provider for the company. It kept my value very high. When I when I work on a game, I want it to be excellent. And my team knows that. I love working with excellent people, and I have been fortunate to work with the best. It's just sad when you when you, when you you know you do your best work, and then the uh, you know the contribution of the company isn't enough. I mean, our video games are making much more money. Williams had let my contract run out, too, which they had never done before. They'd always come back and say, okay, when are you going to sign your new contract? Well, they didn't. They forgot all about it. And that definitely expressed how much interest they had in continuing in pinball. So I began to look for a job, and I took a vacation back out here to California, my home. I started looking back out here, and I walked into the new Atari and saw some of the guys that were still there from the first time I was there. I started talking to them. I, I, I made a deal, and uh, it, it seemed pretty good. We were, we were like maybe halfway through it. They were definitely trying to pay me less than I wanted to get paid, but but something was going on. Well, I got back from Atari and went back to work at Williams, and um, I found out the next day from when I got back that Williams had bought Atari. I had no idea what was going on, and that they knew that I was dealing with them. They purchased Atari, and I went up to see Ken Fidesz in the office, and I said, well, look, the guys bought the company I was going to get hired at. I would like a transfer. What do you think? And he said, sure, we can do that. So I got to move back here and work for Atari, and I made a couple of uh, video games there, produced them with a team, um, very good people, very nice people, but uh, not experienced. And it was it was a tough road to hoe, especially on the first one, California Speed. It was a two-year project. But in, uh, at the end of the day, it sold very well. It was, I don't know, $60 million worth of sales or something. And then, and then I did a game there called Mean Streak. And that was a lot of fun, but it was canceled. Wow, I would say it had maybe six more months of work to go. 
uh, and they called me and said, okay, well, we're going to let you go. And I still had like a year and a half left on my contract. And, and Williams was very good about it and continued to pay me, but they shut down Atari completely, which was sad. Can you tell us a bit more about what went into California Speed? California Speed was... Um, it was a very interesting journey, no doubt. Uh, there were 15 people on the team, I guess, and only one guy on the team had ever been a part of a development project that had actually been manufactured. Nobody else on the team had any experience at all, so it was a tough time. And I, I think it was an obstacle set up so that I, I might fail there. I think. I think management at Atari at that time thought that I was a spy for Williams. I can't say it for sure. I can say that I had a great time there with Mark Pierce. I think he knew that I wasn't spying. I think the president did, though. I think he thought I would be reporting to the people at Red Williams, you know, like on a daily basis, but I didn't. I, I became part of Atari's culture and uh, remained loyal. Going back to your voice acting, have you voiced any other characters that our listeners might be familiar with? Actually, I've done a ton of characters. I think Barry Alzer was kind of making fun of me, but he said he asked me to be the dummy in Comet. And I was supposed to say, hey, Turkey, come on, hit me. Things like that. So I was the dummy in that game. I did voice work on Taxi. I'm not sure what character, though. I don't remember. It might have been Gordy, but I'm not sure. I was General Yagoff in F-14, and my brother was Hitman, and there was, you know, constant dialogue going on between those guys during the game. I was the announcer on high-impact football. And man, I, that made me hoarse. It was definitely high energy. I think I did a lot of voice work on Space Station, too, but I don't remember a single quote. Um, I don't know. People would come and get me when they wanted a, uh, a bad guy voice or uh, something emotional. Did your choice to make the Star Trek The Next Generation wide body have anything to do with the Atarians or the Atari wide body designs? Actually, the Star Trek The Next Generation uh, wide body dimensions are not of the same width as the Atarians or Atari games. In fact, they were too wide. It's, you know, shots on the outside, you know, on both the left and right side on Atari uh, design are really tough to make, and it's really not such a playable part of the game. But you, you go in a couple inches on each side or an inch or so, and it's suddenly you have a lot more room, the shots are makeable. The wide play fields, or super pins that we made, uh, allowed us to put one or two more shots and uh, a lot more components into the game. Star Trek was a very elaborate game, and I could not have done all that on a narrow body. It really didn't have anything to do with being on the Enterprise or anything else. It was it was about playability and uh, more stuff on the game. It's we had to constantly step up everything. We had I felt the need to try and go beyond you know every game, at least in that era, to the next thing with innovations and uh, we actually did to capture the sales. I mean we had to do that. We had to innovate and and continue uh, developing new things. It's true today too, but. It was really tough at Stern uh, because they have such a, well, we'll get into that. Whenever we talk pinball on this show, I have to ask, were you aware of George Lucas's conspiracy to kill pinball? Actually, um, as far as I remember, I, I, I don't think I've ever heard of uh, George Lucas's conspiracy to destroy pinball. I, uh, I have no idea. And uh, it just refers to his influence 
over what the game designers were doing there. Uh, I don't know. It sounds like someone's opinion, but I, I doubt that George Lucas actually set out to destroy pinball. Really, are are you aware of the home ROM availability of George Lucas's famous voice acting outtakes for Episode One of Pinball Two Thousand, where he says "F you, pinball" when you hit Princess Amidali in the face with a bonus ball? Actually, I am not aware of the home ROM uh, either. It's uh, it's George Lucas's voice. I have no idea. I had no idea it existed. I know who to get in touch with, though, to, to talk about this. <laughs> I'm actually most likely confusing that with your home ROM version of the T2 table that has the infamous Schwarzenegger outtake voiceovers. <laughs> That's pretty funny. I, uh, on T2, uh, we didn't ask Arnold Schwarzenegger for his, uh, well, basically his you all quote. It just was on the tape. And, um... He had to go into a mobile studio in Mexico at the time we needed a speech. And I don't think he was particularly happy with us, but he did a great job with the voice. It was funny. He said some funny stuff, too. But, uh, you know, he may have been a little annoyed, but he still did the work, and it was excellent as far as we were concerned. Everything was totally usable on TQ. And, uh, you know, it was a major coup to get him to speak on a pinball machine. It's like... I don't know. We had a great time making T2. And then and T2, uh, I went to get it. I, I, nobody was aware at Williams that um, the original Terminator movie, James Cameron's first movie, was like, for me, the best B movie ever made. Just so cool. Good story. Nice twist for its era. When I found out that he was going to be making T2, I jumped on it and, uh, you know, I asked Roger Sharp and, you know, Ken Fidesma, the general manager at the time, if we could go get this license. And they said, sure. What an adventure it was. It was spectacular. And we went, uh, let's see, Doug Watson, the artist for T2, and Dwight Sullivan, the programmer, and I were shipped down to Lightstorm Studios. And we got to wander around and uh, check out, you know, all the cool things they had there. And then, and then we got, like, three hours with James Cameron, the man himself, sitting in his office talking to him. And he was, he was great to us. We were blown away. We go in there and he's got this huge credenza that's curved along one wall and on it is the one of the stop action models, maybe two feet high of, of the Terminator character that they use for miniatures and it's made of all metal. It's awesome. You can play with it. You can play with the uh, the forklift thing that Sigourney Weaver got in in, in Aliens and um it was just an amazing day. Anyway, he was a gamer, and uh, he had suggestions for the game, and he wasn't really pushy about it, but what I really liked was he gave us more cooperation on that title than any company had ever given us before on a license. It was We got dailies. Everything they shot on the day, we, we'd get them the next day out at Williams, and we'd, we'd see where, where, you know, how things were progressing with the movies. Everything they shot the day before. It was more than I could look at. He loaned us things like the chip, a Terminator skull. He loaned us the actual arm that was in the movie. You know, remember the metal arm uh, in a glass box? It, it, we had it. We were holding it in our hands. Any cooperation that we needed, we'd go back down. At the same time, we were making a Terminator 2 gun game. George, uh... 
George Petro and his team were uh, making that uh, Terminator 2 video game, and it was fun too. So we were really utilizing everything they could get for us. And it was a great license, great time. We had exactly one year to make T2, and we were in the theaters on the 4th of July of that year with all the games. It was all all ready to go, and uh, it was just a spectacular time. And we sold, uh, what, 15,200 and two machines. I, I actually own the very last game on the line. Were the doors of James Cameron still open for the Avatar license? In, in terms of Avatar, the answer is yes. Gary Stern just sent me out to Lightstorm to check out uh, Avatar. And uh, uh, again, uh, two and a half years ago, I don't know. I, I just believe in Avatar. I, I knew that they were making the movie and I'm um, a James Cameron fan and I know he just doesn't fail and uh, Avatar sounded so good that I went to get it. And, and uh, at first, Gary Stern did not want to get it, but then he checked with uh, some uh, respected licensing people. I'm pretty sure he called Roger Sharp on this. And anyway, he did agree, you know, to go and get it. So, yes, I went down to Lightstorm and. Uh, again, I didn't get to meet James Cameron this time, but I got to read the script and, and check out uh, sets and uh, props. It was a great meeting. Loved it. Loved every second of it. Totally enthralled. Great theme for a pinball machine. I just wish it could have been built, but it wasn't in the cards. And uh, I'm pretty sure there's going to be a sequel, you know, and I'd, I'd love to make a pinball about that. Or a video game. Either one. I would love it. It's a perfect vehicle for a, uh, for a game. You have revisited some of your themes, and I really, really like that, especially if it helps expand the mythology of the creation. I don't mind making, making sequels if they can be really good. You leave the market open, and, and people really want to see the next installment, uh, you know, of, of any existing theme, like... The Getaway is, is, is really a, a driving game uh, that uh, there's a few things that it has in common with high speed, but not many. It's just it's just another driving theme pinball machine. But High Speed 2 was, I didn't really think of it as a sequel, but yeah, I mean, the cops are after you, but the accelerator thing, you know, all that is completely different. The rules were like uh, quite different. I, I like making Black Knight 2000 and actually, Actually, there's room for another sequel there. I have a nice idea for uh, a third Black Knight game. Although, he might not be black. I don't know. Um, I would love to see your take on an Evil Knievel pinball machine. It's hard for me to imagine that because I'm not the designer of the first Evil Knievel pinball machine. However... I am a lifetime motorcyclist. I've been riding motorcycles for 50 years, and I can still get down in the dirt. And dirt is extremely strenuous, but I, I just love it. It's one of the most fun things I, I can think of doing. I love motorcycles, and um, I could definitely see an Evil Knievel pinball update. It could be awesome, too. You know, maybe. I assume the majority of our listeners do not own a pinball machine, myself included, unfortunately. Do you have any advice about becoming a pinball owner? Get with somebody who owns a game and try and figure out what you want. That's, that's the biggest thing. There will be lots of games available, but if you don't know what you want, set yourself up for uh, possible problems. You should know a game before you want to buy it and like it a lot. And, you, know, you need to play it and find out if it's the game for you because you're going to be playing it for a long time. You're going to be spending money. 
probably fixing it up. Uh, you know, it's going to take time and energy, so it should be something that you love to play and that you already know. The other, the other thing is to get on uh, some uh, news groups like uh, rec.games.pinball. That's a uh, that's a great source. If you want to know what a good game is or what you should pay for a game, uh, a title, there's always somebody on there who has experience with, with every title or any title. They'll come out of the woodwork to help you. Steve Ritchie, what's next? When you say what's next, what's next? I, you know, I'm not really sure. I have a website. It's called steveritchiepinball.com. And right now I'm selling tons of stuff, autograph things, uh, a lot of uh, pinball rarities. I've developed a few products. Um, this is what I'm doing right now because there isn't work for me in pinball right now. Stern is kind of struggling, and there are some opportunities coming up. There's a, there's a company making video pinball, and we have been talking. Uh, something may come of that. It's possible that someone else may be manufacturing pinballs in the near future. And that's what I'm doing right now, developing new products for my website. Anyway, that's steveritchiepinball.com with a T. Steve Ritchie, R-I-T-C-H-I-E. Well, Steve, thank you so very much for being part of We Talk Games. You know, Wig, I've had a lot of fun here talking to you, and uh, I always love talking about pinball and meeting pinball people. It's my first love. It was great meeting you, great talking to you. Thanks, pal. Have a good day. Bye now. Bye. Steve Ritchie, We Talk Games. Big, uh, one of the greatest pinball designers of all time. Big names! Huge name! The biggest! What's your favorite Steve Ritchie table? Right now, off the top of your head. Uh, <laughs> I was going to go with Black Knight. You know, oh, that's, Black Knight. That, that's too cliche. It is one of the greatest pinball tables of all time. It, who wouldn't want to own a Black Knight table? I want one. But, I, you know, I, I think I think maybe one of the high speeds, high speed one, high speed two. Okay. And I really enjoy that. I mean, that is a fun table. Hey, did you play the Spider-Man pinball uh, more recently from Stern? The Stern one? I did not play that one. He designed that, too. He's I still know. designing pinball tables, even today. Yeah. yeah well, that was a couple of years ago, right? And 2007. One of my favorite tables? Yeah. Black Knight 2000. All great games. All of them. We got to catch up with that guy and find out what, what the big secret was that he couldn't tell us he was working on. People still tapping his mind today. Yeah. All right, Pally. Hey, a great another episode of uh, the interview Starcade. If you like what you hear, go to wetalkgames.com. Be part of that community. Tilt! Bye! Goodbye. Goodbye.